You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. And I'm Abe Shapiro. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. In today's Disabulletin, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with Professor Steve Sanders at the IU Mauer School of Law. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, spying on you on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. More following today's feature, but first, your local headlines. Town Council discussed the Governor Park apartment complex at their meeting on October 24th. Representing Allied Argenta, the development company, Principal Yvonne Delgadillo asked the council members to approve of a pilot program, which would grant them a 30-year tax abatement to help the low-income apartment complex. We were hoping that we wouldn't have to come back, um, but the reason I'm here before you today is that a few years ago, you guys had um, the town council approved uh, a 10-year tax exemption for Governor Park, Indiana, LLC. At that time, um, the state of Indiana was looking at... um, implementing a statewide pilot program that would allow all affordable housing projects to apply for for this pilot agreement um, for a tax exemption. And it wasn't approved until December 2020 and took effect January 2021. Uh, We actually came before you a few months ago and there was one approved for Richland Apartments. And What we would like the town council to consider is granting this pilot agreement for Governor Park as well. The reason we're we're coming now is one, that this pilot agreement is available, but to also provide an update on the challenges that we've encountered with Governor Park Indiana. And or Governor Park Apartments, and that's that's when I come back to what I was saying before that I wish that we didn't have to come and and ask for the assistance. Um, About six years ago, when we first started to put together Governor Park, um, we were looking at a $9 million project. Uh, When we were finally able to secure the 9% tax credits and um, get to closing, we found out that our budget had gone up at that time, $11 million, and then when we finally got the final uh, contract from Powers & Sons, it came out to $18 million at that time. Um, we had to make a lot of adjustments, um, and even today, we've had to make them. This project has probably been one of the most challenging we've ever encountered, and um, but it's, it's also been really important for us to be able to provide this type of affordable housing in the town of Allettesville. And like I said, we wouldn't have been able to move forward with it without the support from the town in every way. Denise and Kevin and 
Chief Payton and, and um, Mr. Farmer, everyone and all of you that have supported in every which way. So right now, this pilot agreement would allow the project to count in terms of operations to be able to provide those participants that can't afford right now to um, live there, to be able to live there. Councilmember Scott Oldham said he had concerns about the amount of support that Governor Park has required from the town of Ellettsville. He said that the number of police, fire, and ambulance calls have increased in the last few weeks and wants to make sure that it is addressed before offering more assistance. First, I think the construction was done very well. Uh, the project was managed very well. Um, I think the goal is incredibly laudable. However, if you remember correctly, and I'm sure you don't because you've done this a lot, um, when this first came before the council two, three years ago, I voiced concern over our ability to provide the required public safety as assets. In the last, I'll say 10 days, the run volume for all of the public safety assets, police, fire, EMS, has gone through the roof. The seriousness of the instances has gone through the roof. I would really like to hear what the plan is, if any, um, because again, part of the council's desire was to make sure this project went through, but the cautions were also, we only have a certain amount of tax money to pay for public safety assets. And at least twice in the last seven days, the Ellisville Police Department has had to reach out to other area law enforcement agencies to send multiple assets to that address mm -hmm. to assist with some very serious crimes. And that was a concern from the get-go, that, that that would, again, kind of lead down that path. Mm -hmm. So I need to know before we start getting into this, because again, they're competing priorities. They're both good priorities, public safety and, and letting people live in an affordable environment, a safe environment. Mm -hmm. Management and development is crucial in that as to what are we doing? How are we selecting? What are we doing with the people who act against the safety interests of everyone else. Yeah. You know, we cannot abate more or give more and still give more on the other side too. So I, I need to hear from you guys and we can talk privately later about what are we doing? How are we doing this? Because it can't continue. When it's, when it's dragging multiple law enforcement agencies, multiple fire agencies, more than one or two ambulances to the scene on a regular basis, we, we've gotta have a sustainable plan for that and this does not smack of a sustainable plan with those competing priorities. Delgadillo responded that his concern about the number of incidents on the premises are valid. She assured him that they are working on addressing the issue with the help of their partnership with Stonebelt and would like to collaborate with the town to ensure that the housing development is sustainable. Oldham said that since the company is not making any money on the project, he is doubtful they will stay for much longer and is worried things will continue to go downhill. Delgadillo assured him they are committed to this development. No, this is... Unlike other projects, this project is is one that's near and dear to our heart. We, the developer, we're, we're, we're owner and we are also part of this community. And so I know that words mean nothing, they're meaningless, and obviously it's all about actions, and I understand that. And all I can tell you is that we're, we're not here we wouldn't be asking for for this type of assistance if we were looking at walking away. Because the reason that we're also asking for this 
particular um, pilot agreement is to allow us to give us the 30 days that this, that the 30 years that the requirements suggest in the extended agreement. Because after 15 years and after the initial compliance period runs, I'm sure that property is going to need a roof replacement or some adjustments that we are looking at being the ones to redevelop and reinvest in there. And so that's going to extend the affordability even longer. Um, and I, all I can tell you is that we are there and we will be there. Have there been challenges? There have. And we are working on and addressing the issues with some of the residents that are there. Um, luckily, I will tell you that despite working with a different type of population, um, for example, adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, it's usually a very sensitive um, group. Uh, population, but the relationship we've been able to build with Stonebelt, having that direct communication with them and having the case managers working with them, they feel safe. They they actually feel like they at least have an opportunity to, be con to live independently where they didn't before. And so that's the kind of environment we need to, we want to foster. And when we do see that being jeopardized, it raises heads for us. And I will tell you that I'm here, unfortunately, not on a daily basis. I'm there every week um, and physically there every month. Um, but it's something that I'm on top of every week. And, and I know that Carson has also committed to going there every single day. Council Treasurer Sandra Hash commented that they already have a 10-year abatement that the council approved. Town Marshal Mike Farmer said that they have a meeting set up with developers to address some of these issues. This was the first reading of the request. The council will make a final vote on the matter at their meeting on December 27th. The next Ellisville Town Council meeting will be held on November 13th. In today's Disabulletin, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with Professor Steve Sanders at the IU Maurer School of Law to begin our special report, Civil or Not, the Course Case of Tlefsky v. Marion and the debate over a private right to sue. We turn now to that interview. Good evening, fair listener. I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is The Disbulletin, where we cover the latest issues affecting the disability community and beyond, particularly within the legal field. Starting this week, we begin our special report, Civil or Not, the case of Tlefsky v. Marion and the debate over a private right to sue. And who better to begin our coverage this week with than... Professor Steve Sanders, a constitutional law professor at IU Maurer School of Law, whose specializations include questions regarding the 14th Amendment's guarantees of equal protection and due process, in particular when applied to Section 1983, the statute currently at hand in this case. Professor Sanders, welcome to the Disbulletin. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for asking me, Abe. So let's begin by laying the bare bones of this situation. Who is involved in this court case and what are the primary questions at hand? Yeah, so uh, this involves a, a, a gentleman who is now deceased, the late 
Georgi Talevsky, who was a resident in a nursing home in northern Indiana that is owned by a private government entity called the Health and Hospitals Corporation. Uh, so right off the bat, the case in front of the Supreme Court deals with not all nursing homes, but nursing homes that are publicly owned, uh, owned by government entities. During the course of his residency, Mr. Talevsky was showing signs of dementia. He was acting out. He was acting in ways that the staff perceived to be threatening and potentially dangerous to staff members and to other residents of the home. And so they did a number of things. They doctor there prescribed medications uh, uh, intended to sort of calm him down or to to make him less active, essentially to subdue him. The other thing they did at one point was to transfer him against his will to a different nursing facility, one that was all male, because one of the allegations was he was acting in potentially sexually threatening ways to women in the home he was in, something he and his family protested. Um, so eventually he won uh, uh, the part of his case before an administrative law judge that said he was inappropriately transferred, and they gave him the opportunity to go back to the original uh, nursing home, and he declined at that point. And then he later passed away. But his family continues the suit in his name, and what they're saying is he was deprived of rights that he was guaranteed in federal law, which provides funding for these kinds of nursing homes. And because his rights were violated, it's not enough that he had the chance to go through an administrative process and challenge decisions or question decisions or perhaps get decisions reversed. He also suffered damages. He had um, uh, emotional suffering. He had perhaps physical suffering that was caused by the treatment that he was accorded. And so he should get not, he sh it wasn't enough that he'd be given access to a process to challenge what was being done to him. He also suffered compensable loss. And in his estate, his family gets to carry on that claim, even though he is now deceased. The question now before the Supreme Court is that the Constitution has what's colloquially referred to as the spending power. Essentially, that means Congress gets to spend money on things it thinks would be good and would provide for the general welfare. Congress gets to spend money to build roads and airports and provide social security and do all kinds of other things that improve people's welfare. So there's no question that Congress can appropriate money to allow uh, people who are eligible for Medicaid to live and receive services in nursing homes. No question about that. That's a federal program where the federal government spends money in a cooperative state federal program called Medicaid. The question in this case is when that law also says, you know, states, you're going to get this money to spend, but in exchange for that, you have to live up to certain requirements. You have to meet certain guarantees. And among those guarantees are you agree that the patients, the, the residents in your nursing facility have a right not to be chemically uh, restricted in various ways, uh, have the right not to be transferred in ways that are unnecessary or that, that are against their will. The question is, does the recipient of these services, in this case, Mr. Tolevsky or now his estate, do they get to sue and say, this 
extending agreement between the federal government and the states is the resident of the nursing home, who's what the law might call a third-party beneficiary. They weren't a party to the agreement between the federal government and the state, but that money is being spent for their benefit. Do they have the right to go into court and say, this state government agency, the Health and Hospitals Corporation, um, violated my rights, which are secured by the federal law that set the money flowing in the first place. The money didn't come to me directly. The money came to the nursing facility, but it was clearly intended for my benefit. The nursing facility violated the terms of its agreement with the federal government. I suffered damages. I suffered loss. I should have a right to sue. That's the question, as kind of uh, easily and simply as I can describe it, in this case. I think we can talk, depending on where you want to go in the conversation, about how various justices are likely to see the answer to this question. On the one hand, some conservative justices like Judge Justice Gorsuch might be persuaded by what's sometimes called a textualist argument. The text of the statute makes clear that as people like Mr. Tulevsky have rights that can't be violated, and if they're violated, they get to sue. However, on the other hand, there are other, there's another vein of the, within the court's conservative wing that tends to be hostile toward the idea of people coming, being able to come into court to sue, unless it is very clear from the law in recent decades, as the Supreme Court has become more conservative, that has gone hand in hand with making access to the federal courts more difficult. In today's Disabulletin, I speak with legal expert Steve Sanders of the IU Mauer School of Law about the Supreme Court case Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County versus Tulefsky as part of our ongoing special report, Civil or Not, the court case of Tulefsky v. Marion and the debate over a private right to sue. We continue with our coverage. Without express congressional authorization, the court has not been willing to create what are what have sometimes been called implied rights of action. That is, well, you seem to be the kind of person this law was intended to serve, so you can file a lawsuit about it. Um, the judges have been fairly exacting and fairly demanding in seeing that in writing in a law before allowing to somebody to come into federal court. Another thing I teach in the law school is called constitutional litigation, and it is about um, all of the rules that have built up regulating the civil lawsuits where people are suing, and they want money damages because their constitutional rights were violated. In all of these cases, people want monetary damages because they're saying, I had a, a right secured by the Constitution, the government violated that right, and I suffered Compensable injury, compensable damages. Well, the same statute that's at the base of, at the base of that principle that you can come into court and ask for monetary damages when your constitutional rights are violated. It's a law that actually goes back to 1871. It's referred to today colloquially, as you mentioned in the opening, as Section 1983. Well, that statute refers not only to the Constitution of the United States but also to the laws of the United States. And 
And so what Mr. Talevsky's estate and the people supporting his position are saying is, just as people have rights created under the Constitution, they also have rights that are created for their benefit by federal statutes, by the federal statutes that spend money to do things like funding nursing homes and paying for nursing homes. One of the arguments made by Mr. Talevsky's lawyers is that, look, this is just, this begins and ends with the text. It says, I get to sue for damages if a government agency has violated my rights, whether secured by the Constitution or by statutes. If you read the relevant nursing home funding Medicaid statute here, it specifically refers to rights against chemical restraint and transfer rights. On the plain text of the law, I have a right to sue here. That argument, I think, is probably pitched to Justice Gorsuch, who often focuses very specifically, very narrowly on, like, let's not think about what the intent here was or what the hypothetical applications were. Let's just see what the plain text of the law says. And is this an application of the plain text or not? And so an argument like that, that just the plain text of 1983 allows for statutorily created rights to be sued upon, that might appeal to Justice Gorsuch. With regard to statutory law, would the question of common law come into this as well, statutes versus common law? Can you explain to us a little bit about how those concepts rather might be used in a court case like this? Well, yeah. So so the common law, of course, refers to the the vast body of judge-made law, which has evolved over literally centuries, that still plays a very important role in areas like torts, that is, personal injury lawsuits. It still plays a fairly important role in contracts, for example, in some areas of the criminal law. But in, in many areas of life and legal regulation, the common law has been displaced by specific statutes. The main common law argument that has come into play in this case is an analogy to contract principles. So the argument that that the Health and Hospitals Corporation is making, one of their arguments, is that under traditional contract law, it was generally understood that if you and I had a contract and I agreed I would pay you so much money, and in return for that money, you would provide certain services to this third person over here. But that third person is not signing the contract. The contract is just between you and me. Traditionally, the common law would usually say that third person, that so-called third-party beneficiary, if you breach your obligations, if you take the money and don't do what you agreed to do, I have the right to sue and say you breached your obligations, but that third-party beneficiary would not have been thought to have the right to sue under those circumstances. That's an old principle from the common law of contracts. And the Health and Hospitals Corporation is trying to bring that into play here. They're basically saying this, this statute under which Medicaid funds are provided to uh, publicly owned nursing homes like the Health and Hospitals Corporation, that's essentially a form of contract. It's an agreement between the federal government and the, the, the state agency or the local agency, which is ultimately a creature of state government, um, that basically says, you know, I'll give you money in exchange. You agree to do this. You agree not to 
uh, provide undue chemical restraint. You agree to provide certain rights against transfer. You agree to provide these services and do so under these terms. And so Health and Hospitals Corporation is saying, that's a contract. Mr. Talevsky was not a part of that contract. He never signed anything. He never agreed to anything. Uh, he never agreed to take on any obligations. He was not a part of that agreement between the federal government and the states. So he's a third party. He's an outsider. He doesn't get to sue. And and yet he benefits and, from it, though. And, 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 well, he, he is, he is, he is uh, undeniably a beneficiary. As I said, the old common law view was just because you were the beneficiary, you, you as a third party were the beneficiary of a contract between two other people. That did not give you the right to sue. Um, Mr. Tulevsky's estate is saying, yeah, but this isn't a matter of common law of contract that really has no application here. Section 1983 itself specifically says if you have rights which are secured by federal law, you can sue. Mr. Tulevsky says this spending agreement between the federal government and the states did create certain rights intended for me, rights against chemical restraint, rights against unreasonable transfer. So he's saying, forget the common law. This statute clearly does create rights that I benefit from, and if my rights are violated, I get to sue. Stay tuned for tomorrow's local news, where we continue the conversation with constitutional law expert Steve Sanders at the IU Mauer School of Law in an extended edition of Disabulletin. Up next, spying on you on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment here on WFHB. We turn to Richard Fish now for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Your home is your castle. You may share it with family, you may let in your friends, but the rest of the world stays out unless you decide to open the door or answer the phone or turn on the camera and connect online. You can have your privacy when you want it, right? Well, no, not so much, not anymore. People you don't know can keep track of where you are and what you're doing in ways you might not even suspect. Have you got one of those robot vacuums like the Roomba i7 Plus? It works by making a map of your home, and it can share that map over the Internet. The Chinese-made Dongguan Dikki 360 robot vacuum adds all-round cameras with night vision, and both can be vulnerable to hackers. Your car takes you where you want to go whenever you want, and you don't have to keep watching the rearview mirror to see if somebody's tailing you. But almost all modern cars have something called an event data recorder, which keeps track of where you go and how fast you go there, as well as things like the condition of the road and how well your car is working. This information is sent back to car makers and can be shared with law enforcement. You like listening on headphones? 
researchers at Ben-Gurion University in Israel have created a computer virus that turns headphones into microphones. How about your electric toothbrush? Oral-B and Colibri have smart toothbrushes that keep track of your brushing and can share the data over the Internet. Now, there are some more obvious spying devices you might have, like a smart speaker that connects you with Alexa or Siri or Google Assistant and others. They have to be on and listening all the time to pick up their activation word, but they can be fooled by sound-alikes, and hackers know all about them. Hackers also know all about home security cameras. Most of them also have microphones and connect to the Internet. Children talk to their smart toys these days. Genesis had a doll called My Friend Kayla that turned conversations into text and shared it with third parties. And if the child said, Can you keep a secret? The doll replied, I promise not to tell anyone. It's just between you and me. And researchers at Indiana University discovered that Fisher Price's smart bear has a security flaw that lets hackers turn on its built-in camera. Smart watches and fitness trackers gather enough info to tell a hacker if you're on your feet or riding in a car or a bus or a train, and they can sense hand movements enough to identify PIN numbers or passwords as you enter them. Privacy is not a right. It's something you can have, sometimes, if you're smart enough to beware of all the spies in our brave new world. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at wfhb.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at wfhb.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. <laughs>